Action Park Media. We had this little boy with his own dreams. And then he was calling us from a correctional facility. 14 years after being drafted, Leaf was confined to a six by eight foot cell. He isolated for long periods of time. He wasn't completely resolute in becoming just a product of his environment and, and being an addict and all those things. I knew that he didn't want those things. I knew that if, he, if there was a way that I could get through to him, that I was gonna try. He said, you're gonna let these people tell you you have no value? You have a ton of value. Every human being is just as important as every other human being, and I just, I couldn't see that clearly because I thought I was so much more important than everybody else. He had more perspective on life than when he came in. After 32 months, on December 3rd, 2014, Leaf was granted parole and released from prison. You're now listening to Bust, the Ryan Leaf story. Hope can only carry you so far, right? It, it carried me out of those prison doors. But then you have the realization, like, what am I going to do? Seriously, what am I going to do? Who have I been over the last 10 years of my life? Like this drug fiend, addict, mentally ill person. How do you move forward from that? Is there a roadmap? I don't know. But that drive home, it's about 90 minutes from Shelby, Montana, which is where the prison was at, to the home of my mother and father. The day I got out, it was announced, of course, locally in the newspaper, and they ran a cartoon just trolling my ass. Ryan Leaf's getting out, lock up your medicine cabinets, was the cartoon in my hometown newspaper. What the fuck? I get it. I victimized our community. I was supposed to be the hero, and I was a fuck-up. It's not the thing I need to read when I come home. My mom, man, she just... She's got my back. She went down to that newspaper place and fucking went into that editor's office and made them print a retraction and an apology. And I'm, you know, 38 years old. You walk into that home, your parents' home, and you're 38 years old and you just got out of prison and you don't have anything. Most people that get out of prison, they don't even have that, right? They don't have a place they can go sleep. They have nothing. And that's usually why they revert back to their old lifestyle because they need to earn money. And they figure, if I get caught again, I know I can do time. Prison is not a deterrent. It's just another society within our country. Again, it's the reason why we're the most populated prison system in the world. It's a moneymaker. The fact that I had a place to go and lay my head was so huge. Don't get me wrong, waking up, coming upstairs, and having your mother make you breakfast and have to ask your dad for the money that you had invested in the NFL, like a stipend from him. It was just an awkward situation. I begged and pleaded with my parole officer to let me go to treatment in Southern California. He's never had somebody who walks out of an institution like prison and want to go to another institution. 
You know, I wasn't asking to go to some crack den somewhere. I, I was asking to go to a treatment facility, and he, he wouldn't let me go. He wouldn't let me travel. So that hope that I walked out of prison with is slowly deteriorating because you just you wake up and look in the mirror and go, what the fuck? You know, I don't want to feel this way. And then I, that's muscle memory for me. Oh, I don't want to feel this way, so let me go find a way to not feel that. And so just putting one foot in front of the other, started to go walk a little bit around this park in my hometown. There was just a, a path that you could walk, and I think it was about one and a half miles. And when I started out, it was a tough, tough thing to walk one and a half miles. I mean, I was 325 pounds, too. Like, when I walked out of prison, I was I was about to die from, from stroking out. I had such high blood pressure and was not in a good place. That's why I needed a treatment facility to deal with my emotional, physical, and mental health. All of those things. Like, I hadn't used while I was in prison. I don't know how. I just didn't. And so when I got out, it was about three weeks later, and I'd been at home and trying to do those little things. When we went down to my grandparents' home, first Christmas back, you know, in, in many years. And I went out into their kitchen, and I was grabbing a glass from the cabinet. And when I opened it up, I mean, it was literally right in my face. There was a bottle of Vicodin that my grandfather needs because he's in pain. But it's right in my fucking face. And I don't say anything. I don't, I don't take any, but I don't say anything. I don't look out into the room and go, Mom, Dad, there's some opiates in this cabinet. Can you just, can you guys hold on to them for me? What I did is I just kept it quiet because my fucked up mind still was like, okay, if shit gets really bad, now I know where I can get some easy. I just pretend I'm coming down to see Grandpa. You know, he's 80-some years old. Never noticed that I go into that medicine cabinet or that cabinet in the kitchen and take some pills. What I was doing is I was setting myself up to, to relapse already. I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't go to meetings. I didn't do any of that. What I started to do was I would go down to the mission and I would serve meals to the homeless because I was looking for that way to be of service and a way to give back. And then I went to my storage facility, which was still there. My dad had kept it, kept paying it. And I had boxes upon boxes of Nike gear from when I was endorsed by them. And I had just all this, all this clothing, just Jordan brand, Nike, shoes, clothes, all over the place. I mean, I don't know, probably twenty, thirty thousand dollars worth of clothing. But it's worthless. It's not worth any money. And it's certainly not worth anything to me. So this was probably the first, I guess, unselfish thing I, I would do is I went to that storage facility and I grabbed every stitch of fucking clothing. And if anybody got out of prison that I had known while I was in there, I had a little duffel bag ready for them when they got to the bus station with some money. And I said, good luck, here's my number. And that's how I started. And then I took it down and did a clothing drive with all of that. If you were in Great Falls, Montana, over the holiday season of 2014, like the homeless in Great Falls were the most swagged out homeless people you could imagine, right? Just rocking Jordans. That's how I started getting into that, kind of trying to replicate what I had done in prison to, to fuel that hope. 
And my parents are just looking at me, and I, I can only imagine every night just thinking, please, please let something fall his way. They had to still be scared to death. Like, what's going to stop him from just going and being the same guy he's always been, you know? And then about three months into that time at home with my parents, my parole officer, who may have seen the work that I was doing or what I had put in, felt a little more trusting of me. He okayed me on what they call a travel permit when you're a parolee to travel to California to enter into a treatment facility. I was so grateful to him. His name was Bill. I don't know if he fully understands how impactful he was in where I'm at right now, allowing me to do that. There are so many people that have carried me along this this path to get me to where I was at, and he was definitely right there at the forefront. And then two of my college teammates, Jason McIndoo, who was my offensive lineman, and Dave Muir, who was my roommate in college, my best friend, who never fucking turned his back on me, ever. Both of them were at my parents' house within days of me getting out, not wanting anything, just to see me, give me a hug, and let me know that they had my back. That's it. All those fucking supposed family, friends, no one was fucking anywhere to be seen. And what's hilarious is in those three months leading up to me leaving to go to treatment, I went back to a couple of my old haunts where I would eat in my hometown, and I ran into a couple of those so-called friends, family. I mean, they walked up to me like nothing fucking happened. And I realized, like, I have to deal with this. I fucking resent them so damn much. I need to work through this because I can't be this angry at these people because I didn't know I was going to be able to leave and go to California. I might be stuck in this town and have to see them and I'm not going to be able to be a healthy version of myself if that's the case. And so when I went to California, my dad flew down with me. We landed. We rented a car. And for the third time my dad stood at the door watching his eldest son once again go into a rehab center I'm a father now it would break my heart I know how helpful these places can be so I may have a different perspective but it would have still broke my heart but I think my dad saw it as like this is the best possible thing for my son and that's where it started That's where the treatment end of it started once again. Now, when I walk in there, I tell them the truth. I tell them I'm, you know, I'm about 35 months sober, about to hit three years sobriety. And they don't fucking believe me (laughs) at all. (laughs) Why is a dude with three years of sobriety coming to treatment? So, of course, you know, you're not going to believe anybody that comes in there. So they, they put me in the detox room where everybody starts when they enter because they can, for medical observation, to make sure... People aren't withdrawing and all the things that go with that. And so I was tested right off the bat, like, well, you don't fucking believe me? It was a surrender and acceptance piece of it all. The key to recovery, the key to my recovery, flat and simple, was that I surrendered and then I accepted whatever the help was. That is as simple as you can make it. I surrendered my will and I accepted the help that was in front of me. 
that was my only way out. And so that's what I did. But it didn't mean like my behavior, it just doesn't change like that, right? Like the consistency part. When I talked about going to the gym one day and waking up and looking like the rock the next, it doesn't happen that way. You gotta, it's practice. It's like practice, practice, practice. So sure enough, about literally 10 days into my rehab stint there, I was sitting in a room watching some TV, doing what I wanted. Someone walked in and wanted to watch something else and grabbed the remote. And like it was like prison rules all of a sudden for me. I mean, that, that switch flipped. Like I was entitled, that entitlement piece again. And I looked over at it and I snatched that fucking remote control out of his hand. And I did the whole intimidating standing over the guy going, we're going to fucking watch what do I want to watch. So he runs off like immediately. I mean, I don't know how big. I mean, I must have scared the shit out of him, right? Fact that this was promises, right? This was the up in Malibu. This was very posh. This is where Lindsay Lohan and Ben Affleck had been. And now they got this ruffian from Montana, this fucking prisoner. One of the aides comes in and she confronts me. And my initial reaction is the same way. It's just like, don't fucking tell me what to do. And my my reaction in all those situations is flight or flight. It always is, right? And a lot of times I fight. And now I knew that would just get me in more trouble. So I just, I said, I'm gone, right? I, I, all the money that I had left from the NFL that was in an annuity had been used to pay for this treatment facility. Side note there, my union, the NFLPA, when I reached out for the fund, the grant, told me to go fucking kick rocks. We're not going to throw good money after bad, is what they said. guy named Tyrone Allen. I just walked away. I looked at the woman who helped me get into the place on a much cheaper price because I didn't have a whole bunch of that money left. And I told her, <laughs> I had the balls to tell her. I said, I've only been here 10 days. Why don't you give me what I have left over and I'm gone? And she said, that's not how it works, Ryan. I already gave you a, 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 such a discount. And I was like, well, fuck it. And I'm out of here. So I took a cab to a hotel down by LAX. And I was right back in that place I'd always been. Just a fuck up, gone, over. But something's different about me now, right? I, there was some self-reflection when I got there. Like it wasn't the end of the world that I left. If I stay gone, it is the end of the world. But instead, I talk to my family. I tell them the truth of what's going on, where I'm at. I surrender once again to what is real and that I fucked up here and I need to make go make amends and see if I can come back because I know there is no future for me without finishing this program. And with great humility, because it was embarrassing, I went back. And there's consequences to your actions, right? I got pulled in front of the entire group and every person in that room got a shot to say whatever the fuck they wanted and felt like it was in a safe space and I just had to take it, you know? Reminded me of that high school film session with my high school coach just fucking berating me in front of everybody and me just taking it and the respect that it garnered because of it. God, it was killing me inside because of course it's not all true. Like just some of the things they're saying are just projections on their own. And that was 10 days in. I would spend 90 days in that treatment facility. You know, most times you hear people stay the 28 days. 
I chose 90 days, three cycles. And I stayed in that detox room the entire time because a newcomer came in. I had like 38 roommates during that 90-day span. I needed to work on my empathy. I needed to also know what was still out there for me. New guys would come in and they would be detoxing off the worst possible shit you could imagine. And I had to be there to comfort, show them it was going to be okay. And it taught me patience and understanding. Like I am a world-class athlete. The amount of time I put into that, if I took a fraction of that and put that into my recovery, I'd be a fucking Hall of Famer in recovery. That's the way I approached it. So I was serious as shit about it. People would come in and they didn't, they didn't like me because I wouldn't talk about football or what. I, I was about my recovery and my recovery only. That's it. I don't give two shits about what you're talking about unless it's, I'm, I'm here to support your recovery if it supports my recovery. And that's what I did for those 90 days. I had my three-year birthday while in treatment. And right at the end of the stay, you know, when you get towards the end, you get these other tiers. And I was to tier three, which allowed me then to go off campus and get a job. And so one day this guy comes up. He's taking one of the clients who's about to leave on a tour of their sober living house. The place was called Transcend Recovery Community. And I remember he was a a mentor of sorts. He drove people around. He worked in the homes to help the newly sober. And I asked him, I said, hey, how do you you get that job? And he kind of explained to me, I said, here, will you give my email and phone number to your boss and let him know I'm interested in a job? And he was like, yeah, sure. And away he went. And like two days passed, I didn't hear anything. Now, don't forget, I've, the world still runs on my time frame. It always, always has. And so I went into my therapist's office and I said, do you have, do you have contacts at fucking Transcend Recovery Community? G- give them to me, please. I want to reach out to them. I'd never made a job resume, right? I mean, I'm a fucking football player. I'd never had to apply for a job, right? I worked at Subway once when I was in college and that lasted about two weeks. So I went on like resumebuilder.com, paid the fee, you know, I had to embellish things like past jobs. I'm like, National Football League, uh, quarterback, worked on strategic game planning all week, executed said game plan, was leader. I mean, I just, I still have it. I still pull it out from time to time just to look at it. And so I keep calling this guy. He's the CEO of the company. And I finally get a call back. And I say, I can come down and interview. And I would love the opportunity. And he's like, well, why don't you come down to the house here next Tuesday at such and such a time? And I said, all right. And I get off the phone and he told me this story. He looks at his his partner and he's like, dude, this dude wants a job. He will not stop calling me. And you know what's fucking funny? He's got the same name as that, that old football players. So he didn't know it was me. I hadn't sent the resume yet. And he's a huge sports fan. And then when I sent the resume... He put two and two together, and I walked in to that interview, I think, with a pretty good shot. He said, I got an opportunity for you if you'd like it. Normally, we start guys out at 10 bucks an hour, but we're going to start you out at 15 And the only reason I tell you that is because I was making $5 million a year 
and was miserable. Was miserable to be around, was a miserable person, all of it. I had now just been offered a job for $15 an hour, and I had never, I had never felt more value than I did in that moment. And it was the perfect fit. It was being of service and now getting paid for it. Love your job. Never loved playing professional football because I was so caught up in everything and all of it. And I just, I never enjoyed a minute of it. And I started working in this sober living home. I drove guys to meetings. I mentored them in the house. And it was the epitome of being of service to another human being. The thing I was searching for, the thing that had given me hope in prison, I was now doing. I'm still in the rehab center. And I get a call. And my brother, who's an actor and a director, and uh, was filming a pilot trying to get it picked up by Comedy Central. It was a hilarious comedy. It's called The Alley. It was a group of guys own this bully alley. It's kind of like the West Coast version of uh, Always Sunny. Fucking hilarious. I think everything my brother does is funny, though. So, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm biased. And uh, he calls and says, hey, I'm filming this whole day in the bowling alley. I rented out the whole bowling alley, and we're going to film the episode. And I said, that's awesome. And he said, come up and watch your brother work. And I said, hey, bud, I would love nothing more. I just can't afford the gas. I mean, I had no money. Couldn't afford gas to drive to Oxnard from Malibu, which is about as close as you can get if you're doing a little bit of a journey. And he said, hey. I'll pay your gas. Just come up and watch your brother work. You never got a chance to really do that. And so I said, okay. And I went. And I got to see him work. And I got to see him be in his element. So good at what he does. And towards the end of the shoot, in walks this woman. And she's got these big, like, platforms on. It had to make her, like, 6'3", 6'4". And I was like, oh, my God. Well, first off, she's gorgeous. She's just beautiful, auburn hair. I hadn't been with a woman or really seen another woman for so long. Uh, I must have been like a teenager in those early, early months. But anyway, she was working as an actress and as a, a stunt person on the show. She pretty much plays this dead woman and gets drug around the whole alley by my brother and his fuck-up friends. And... One time, she was down on the ground being drug around, and I just filmed it with my camera. And when we got done, I go, I go, would you like to see it? And I showed it to her because she could never see any of her stuff because she, she's got to play this dead person while she's getting drug around the place. And she watched it. We keep talking a little bit. Turns out she thought I was part of the crew. She thought I was the cameraman because I had, what she said, I had such steady hands, which is ironic because in my addiction, my fucking hands would shake like crazy. So the fact that I was sober and my hands were steady was like a real calling card with her in that moment. And we start talking and then find out she's a former athlete. And I, of course, tell her I was a former athlete too and that I've been trying to get back into shape and started with the trainer again. And then I had to rip the Band-Aid off and be fully transparent because I'm, I'm Googleable, right? You fucking meet somebody out, you can go Google them. And when you Google my name at that time, the first picture that pops up is a fucking mugshot. Guy in stripes. Stories about felony after felony after felony. So when I meet new people, I just, I tell them. I just got out of prison six months ago. And she didn't run away. I just thought I'd tell you that. Um, I'd love to hang out again. Here's my number. 
if I give her my number, then it's in her court to call me. Because if she doesn't want to, and I never hear from her again, that's fine. But my dumbass, if I got her number, I would fucking be texting and calling and just be rejected in a different way. And she called. We went and saw the movie Mad Max with Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron. We went and had dinner. I got a call from my work. Somebody couldn't come into work and then asked if I could drive in and stay in the house and just kind of be the manager of the house for a couple hours until they get a replacement to do the night shift. And so I, I looked at her and I said, I'm sorry, I have to go do this work. And then I was like, would you like to come with me? See what I do? And she said, yeah. And so she came with me and she sat those two hours late into the night, like until one or two in the morning, as I watched over these newly sober individuals trying to do exactly what I was trying to do. And apparently she didn't know it was a date. She just kind of thought we were two former athletes and maybe might want to get together and do some workouts and just kind of hang out. So as I'm walking her back to her her car, she tells me about the inner dialogue that she's having later. And she's like, all of a sudden she saw me start to go in for a kiss. Because all night long she was just thinking like, it's not a date, it's not a date, it's not a date. And then as I started to go in for a kiss, (laughs) like her inner dialogue started just saying, it's a date, it's a date, it's a date, you know, and freaking out a little bit. And that's where it started. Her name's Anna. We've been together for six years. We have a four-year-old son. She's been my biggest cheerleader, supporter, accountability partner, I think is a better word and definition too, because that's what I need. Loving mother, partner, all of it. I was never as you've heard through this series, I was never vulnerable with women. I was never intimate with women. I saw them as objects. I objectified them. It was about my satisfaction and everything like that. So I never had that. And you're not supposed to really get into a relationship early in your recovery. And we took our time. You know, we dated through the rest of the year. And like I said, the rest is history. My brother takes a ton of credit for this. I've yet to see that fucking gas money either. But it's exactly what it was supposed to be. So when I got back from that, watching my brother work, meeting Anna, I was about to get released from the treatment facility. And again, I had a ton of hope, but I was in this place. A, I had to go back to Montana and check in because I was on a three-month travel permit. I was at the mercy of my parole officer allowing me to go back to California to continue to work but I needed a place to stay luckily again the people there at Promises the individual who just let me come back after I left kept counseling me she found another treatment facility that needed a overnight manager of a sober living so what I would do is I'd have to be at work every night by 10 o'clock, and I worked from 10 until 8 the next morning. And I was just there on scene in case any of the clients in the houses had trouble, things went wrong, there's a support. What it included was the free room and board. This beautiful guest house up in the Malibu Hills. I mean, it's not lost on me that when I make the next right choice, 
fucking good things happen for me. I understand that fully. When I went home and I displayed all these things out in front of my parole officer for another travel permit, I was under the assumption or I assumed that he was just going to say no and I was going to be back in Montana. But I knew I couldn't stay there. So I knew I had to transfer my parole to some other place. But he let me go. He was getting reports back from my counselor there at the facility and felt comfortable enough, I guess, to let me go back down. And that's what I did. During the span, I got introduced to a meeting. Now, I'm never going to break anonymity or or anything when it comes to this, but it's a private meeting. There are people in that meeting that are incredibly famous, and I didn't know how to live a sober life in the public eye. I, I didn't know how to do it. I had no idea. And when I got brought to this meeting, and I sat down and I saw some of these individuals that were in that room, I mean, they are world famous people. And they were humble and empathetic and lived a public, sober life. It's something I didn't know I needed. And now I I could never live without it. Like it is the reason why I'm here telling you my story. I I can't even, it's immeasurable to tell you the impact that they've had on my life. And that all happened here in California too. California is an unbelievable resource when it comes to recovery. There are 2,500 meetings a week. There's no stigma in Los Angeles around recovery and mental health, zero. People don't look at you like you're fucked up. They look at you like you're a human being that is dealing with exactly what everybody else is dealing with. And that's part of it. Now, I'm gonna piece this all together because it's just not one thing. You just don't stop using the drug and you get better. It is a combination of many, many, many things. And when I get a new sponsee or someone new in recovery and I give them what I did to get where I'm at, it seems incredibly overwhelming. And they just can't do it. They can't fathom like, what you need to do here is you need to A, surrender and accept help. You need to meditate and pray. You need to exercise. You need to eat right. You need to see a therapist. You need to get a sponsor. You need to do the steps. You need to go to meetings. All these things. I'm like, dude, the amount of time I spent searching for drugs, the hiding, the lying, this isn't even close to any of that stuff. This will feel like it's going to a spa compared to that. And that's exactly what I've been doing and do still and know that I always have to because nothing's going to change. At the end of that first year here in California, the Super Bowl was in San Francisco. Sure enough, it was the Denver Broncos led by a quarterback named Peyton Manning against the Carolina Panthers. Now, the NFL PA had this offshoot called the trust. And what it did is it allowed for former players to go get a a very comprehensive health workup at these events, at Super Bowls, at the draft, at things like that. Ann and I drove up and I was incredibly nervous. And I thought, okay, I'm just gonna go get this health screening and then we'll come back. No one will even know we're there. And we went through the health screening. As I was walking out, a former player had this pamphlet about this thing called the Legends Community. The NFL had started. It was for any player who had ever signed a contract. And there's like 27,000 of us. That's it. 
in the 100 years of football. There's only 27,000. All right? Bust. <laughs> Bust my ass. 27,000 ever. Anybody who uses that word to call another player that, you're the fucking bust. It's exactly what that is. And he invites me to this, this get-together. It's up at, on the top of one of the hotels. I walk in. I register. I walk into the room. There's Joe Namath. There's Warwick Dunn. There's four of my former teammates. I see Warwick Dunn, Scott Turner, Chad Pennington, Donnie Edwards, and they all just come right up to me and just wrap me up in a hug. Like I didn't didn't feel like I belonged anywhere, right? I was still so nervous and everything, and they just embraced me in that moment and talked about, it doesn't matter if you played one year, six games, 16 years, we all struggle with the transition. It's been our identity our whole lives. We need each other. We need this brotherhood to help us get through it because the NFL won't fucking do it. They don't care. It has to be on us. And I sat with Anna in that room with my former teammates and just chopped it up. And I walked out of that room just on top of the world, like searching for that locker room again, right? Remember that, that locker room in college with my college teammates I've been searching for that feeling ever since I left it after that Rose Bowl where do you go when you take that uniform off who do you become you never understand how difficult that is and then to be welcome back in and as I was walking out I run into one of Dan Patrick's boys uh, Paulie Paps now Paul had, had stayed in contact with me a little while I was in prison and, you know, I mean, it would be a, I suppose it would be a big coup to get Ryan Leaf on their Super Bowl show while they're in San Francisco. And he reached out and said, hey, you want to come on the show? Kind of let everybody know where you're at. And, and I was like, nah, nah, I can't do that. My boss had been talking to me a little bit about how I could give back. And a big part of that was with my story. Like when you think of being of service to other people, I think a lot of times you just assume it's the things like you give money, you donate. The most and easiest thing you can do to be of service is to find a fellow human being, a fellow flawed human being like you and share your experience with them or vice versa. Like I don't think this story that you're hearing is unique in any way. I think there's some unique markers in it but I'm just like everybody else. I'm just a flawed human being trying to be better every single day and fucking failing all the time. And I looked at Anna and I said, okay, scared out of my wits the next morning, getting changed because I'm fucking still fat, probably 275 pounds. Now I've lost a ton of weight, lost like 50 pounds, but I still just look like a bloated piece of shit. And that's just, you know, that's just bad self-talk. I know, but I go and do it, and this would be the first time I've spoken publicly since it really all went down. It also would be the first time that I ever spoke publicly truthfully. I think that's the biggest identifier of this moment. It would be the first time that I spoke publicly truthfully. And Dan Patrick is one of the best interviewers there are. He's in the Radio Hall of Fame, Broadcasters Hall of Fame, 
it just became like him and I were in the room, no one else. Not that that wasn't going out to millions of people who listen to his show every day. When asked questions, I just simply answered truthfully. Like, sometimes it takes people by surprise when I just flippantly be like, so when I was in prison, it's like a double take. This fucking guy was in prison? You know, it's just, it's my story. I didn't have to write any of this shit down. Right, I come into this room with this mic and I, I'm telling you it. Because I don't have to think about all the things I said to other people or the rabbit trails that I led other people down and the lies I told. Who did I tell what to? How do I make it the same? It's just all the truth. So I don't have to think about it any other way. And that's what I was in that moment. And the feedback and support immediately was overwhelming. It went viral. Again, I was new to what viral really was, but my name was everywhere. It coincided with Johnny Manziel's arrest for, for battery of his girlfriend. So now there is a, a tie that they can attach to. Oh, we could bring Ryan on the show. Comment about what's going on in Johnny Manziel's life right now. He's playing for the Cleveland Browns. This was a huge deal. You know, it was a, a first round draft pick, very similar to me. I can relate. How can I give any sort of feedback on that? And people just started having me on their radio show. So they have a huge radio row at Super Bowls where people come to promote things and stuff like that. I was so fearful about walking into that room too. You know, doing one thing and doing Dan Patrick's show in a closed set is completely different than walking onto the floor of Radio Row at Super Bowl where everybody and their their mom is at. So a buddy of mine, a guy named Craig, who is really, really talented and can do hilarious imitations. He gets asked to come to these Super Bowls every year and go on the radio. They'll prank people and they'll call up and they'll talk like he's Al Pacino. And I was so fearful about being in that room and going on these things. He offered, hey, when you go do the radio hits, I just come with you, sit with you, and I'll do it too, you know? And I'll break it up and be funny. And and he like, he like fucking took my hand and he just led me. And all of a sudden I had done 35 radio shows. And so that's where that started, the broadcasting side of it. Now I'd gone to broadcasting school at Washington State. I, I majored in communications. The last place I wanted to be when I left the NFL was in a newsroom though, because I had to go do an internship to get that degree. I got a degree in humanities instead. It would have been the best thing I could have done. I would have had to face that walking into a newsroom, be the low guy on the totem pole, get coffee, learn the ropes in every aspect of everything. And maybe that turns out different. But again, I walk a, a more treacherous path my whole life. And I had always kind of started putting down goals on what I wanted to do. And there was really three. One was I used to make the highlight videos for my teammates in college. I love putting music to film. I want to be the guy that picks the music, doesn't write the original shit. I'm not a musician. I'm not, you know, I want to, I want to pick the impactful music. So a sound editor, essentially, or a music editor. So I started researching how I could do that. So that was, that was one of the goals. The other one was law school because I saw what the justice system was like from the inside, things I would need to do to fix it. And so I started applying to law schools and studying up to take the LSATs. And then the third thing was broadcasting. I had gotten essentially that degree at Washington State, the Murrow Communications School. And I used to look at what Kirk Herbstreet did for a living. He did college game day. He went and called the biggest college football game every Saturday night. And I'm like, 
I, I love that, that job. I love that job. So those were the three goals. And I applied to the, the sound editing school. It was in Phoenix. I got accepted. I had put out uh, applications to Columbia Law and a few others. Now, there were a lot of steps I had to climb over to have a felon pass the bar, but I was willing to do it. And then the third thing was the broadcasting side. So I reached out to those individuals and none of them, none of them had to answer my call. Kirk Herbstreit didn't have to. Joe Klatt didn't have to. Greg McElroy didn't have to. They all did. And I asked him if I could come shadow them. And that's what I did for an entire year. I just traveled, shadowed Kirk Herbstreit, Greg McElroy, Joe Klatt. Oh, Brady Quinn too. Brady and Joe Davis, those two multiple times with those guys. I needed to know two things. A, could I do this? And B, could I be good at it? And then I came away with yes to both answers. And that's where it started. And so a small radio shop down in Houston gave me a Saturday afternoon, two-hour show where they allowed me to use Transcend Recovery Community as the ad on it. And that was how I got paid. I didn't get paid to do it. I just did two hours of sports radio every Saturday afternoon for free. Just kept doing it, kept shadowing these guys, learning the craft. And then I made an introduction to the vice president of programming at Sirius XM Radio at one of these events. Found out that there was something in common where we became fast friends. And when the opportunity presented itself where they were setting up conference radio shows, in the Pac-12 footprint, he called me up and said, we're going to start a Pac-12 daily show. I want you to be the first guy I hire to do it, and I'm going to let you pick your co-host. Five days a week, 7 a.m. to 10 a.m., Pac-12 this morning with my boy Guy Haberman. Just reps, 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 practice, practice, practice. Now, still doing my job with Transcend Recovery Community. I'd been elevated to program ambassador and now I was being used more as a, an ideal of what can be a solution. And that's where that would continue to grow. Now, the public eye thing was still a real problem for me. Because I didn't want to be there. I was working on it with my, my group on Monday nights. How to be a sober person, sober public person. And what ultimately shifted and changed everything was... When I did that big press tour at that Super Bowl, ESPN, who does documentary show called E60, came to me and said, we'd love to document this, tell your story. And I, I did not trust the press. I did not trust them at all. And they came in and sold me on the idea that this was going to be a 75% recovery, solution-based documentary with 25% of really, you know, kind of sports past. And I said, okay, if that's the case, you guys just can't come for one week. Like, follow me around for a week, do interviews, and then go make this thing. This has to be lengthy. This has to be long form. This has to be, there has to be evidentiary proof that I am who I say I am because of action. Because I can get in front of a fucking microphone and tell you whatever the hell you want to hear. You got to see it in action. And they looked at each other, and I said, this will probably be about 18 months. And so that was going to be the make or break it. I mean, the producers aren't going to spend 18 months on a thing they put on cable TV on ESPN for an hour and a half, you know. 
Tom Rinaldi, bless his heart, who was the interviewer and the uh, writer of the story, said we're in. And for the next 18 months, we did interviews. They followed me. I started speaking in public. They captured that, and they went out to tell my story. It's called Leaf. Ultimately, would take me to where my life's at now today. That's a bit of the story. You get better every day. That's the plan. You take fucking steps back all the time, but you don't stay down. But what do you do with that story? Do you keep it to yourself? Do you let everybody who thinks they have any idea of who you are bring you down with a word like bust? Or do you reframe it and own it? Are you B-Rabbit at the end of 8 Mile and flat out take accountability for everything and leave zero ammunition for anybody? You want to call me a bust? Fine. Fuck you. It's the name of my fucking podcast, man.